This morning I'm reading from Paul's letter to the Galatians, and uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. Paul says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was wrong. He had been eating with the Gentiles before certain people came from James. But when they came, he began to back out and separate himself, because he was afraid of the people who promoted circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also joined him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas got carried away with them in their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they weren't acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of everyone, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you require the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are born Jews. We are not Gentile sinners. However, we know that a person isn't made righteous by the works of the law but rather through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We ourselves believed in Jesus Christ so that we could be made righteous by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because no one will be made righteous by the works of the law. But if it is discovered that we ourselves are sinners while we are trying to be made righteous in Christ, then is Christ a servant of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild the very things that I tore down, I show that I myself am breaking the law. I died to the law through the law so that I could live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in my body, I live by faith, indeed by the faithfulness of God's Son, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't ignore the grace of God, because if we become righteous through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of God for the people of God. So as I was telling the, uh, the kids, when I was in school, you know, we, we could choose whatever table we wanted to sit at. So we had, you know, there were... There was status assigned to what table you sat at, right? There were people who always sat at this table with these people, and there were people who sat at other tables. And it's kind of like everyone knew their place because of that. And I'm going to be honest, like my little cluster of friends, my, my clique, we weren't particularly nice sometimes, right? We would, we would make it very clear who was not welcome at our table. Uh, and I remember sometimes we would go to the point of if someone sat at our table that we didn't want there, we'd take our lunch boxes and we'd build a wall. That, that, we, we, we were mean. We were, we were bad people. Right? We've, most of us have improved since then, but that's, that's the way we were, right? Because in our minds, like, some people belonged here and some people didn't. Which table you sat at indicated your place in the social order. And it's very much what it was like in early Christianity and in, in the Jewish world. Right? Um, Judaism, in the time of Jesus and the apostles, 
had strict table fellowship customs. And we see this reflected throughout the New Testament. Places where they will say things like, you know, it's really against our law for us to be associating with you. I think of the story in, in Acts, uh, Acts 10 and 11, where uh, Cornelius, the, the, the first Gentile convert to Christianity, invites Peter to come to his house because he's, he's had a vision from God that told him that this guy can explain to him the way to be saved. And, and God had also given Peter a vision. And Peter's up on the roof and he sees this sheet come down with animals in it, and they're all unclean animals, and, and God says, hey, get up and eat, and, and Peter says, eh, nah, no way, I don't eat unclean food, and God's response is, well, don't call unclean what I've made clean, and so when these uh, emissaries from Cornelius come to Peter's house, he goes with them, he comes to Cornelius's house, and when he gets there, he says, you know, it's really against Jewish law for me to even be here. But God showed me that I shouldn't consider any person unclean. So he had made the connection. The vision really wasn't about food. It was about people. That God was saying, the Gentiles, well, now they belong at your table. So don't exclude them. He says, so that's why I'm here. Apparently, though, he had forgotten that. So we have this story here that Paul relates in Galatians about how Peter, he calls him Cephas here, but it's the same guy, Peter. Um, This is his Aramaic name. Was at Antioch for some time, and that was Paul's home church. And it was a mixed church. There were Jews and Gentiles together. It was a very... You know, today we would, we, would, we would compare that to like a very racially integrated church. We don't have very many of those, all right? That, that's one of like the, the most tragic things about the American church is that as much as we have worked to try to, you know, racially integrate in society, it has not trickled down to the church. And so they were on the cutting edge. They had about a 50-50 split, Jews and Gentiles. And that meant they had to deal with some of these customs uh, that other churches maybe didn't necessarily have to deal with, just because they had so many of both groups. And so Peter, according to Paul, says that, well, he had been eating with the Gentiles just fine until certain people showed up from James. Now, James, this is the the brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, a very, very Jewish church, a very conservative church that still maintained a lot of the Jewish customs, even though they were Christians. And said some people had come from that church, which, by the way, was also Peter's home church, And under the peer pressure of these people who were saying, hey, hey, the law says, right? Peter had changed his behavior. He had started to revert back to this segregation, right? Because it says he was afraid of the people 
who promoted circumcision. Some translations will say uh, because of the circumcision party, which doesn't sound like a party I want to go to. But it's referring to that conservative Jewish Christian group that, that uh, we see Paul butting heads with a lot, and we see them in the book of Acts. They are the people who are following along after Paul and telling Gentiles, okay, you got a little bit of the gospel from Paul, but, but let's give you the full thing. Here are the 613 laws that you need to observe. Oh, and by the way, let's start off with circumcision. All right, you've got to cross over. You've got to become like us, Torah-observant Jewish Christians, in order to really fully be part of the church. And so, <clears throat> Peter under their influence, stopped eating with Gentiles. He drew himself back. And that led Paul to rebuke him. To say, well, hey, you, you know, you live like, you're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile in a lot of ways, right? You, you, don't, you don't observe all the laws. You break the laws. So how can you expect them to do things that you don't even do? He sort of, he sort of points the finger at him and says, you hypocrite, Right? So he stands up to Peter, but, but then he transitions. This is really what I want to focus on today. That's all the background, but, but this is the occasion that Paul uses to lay out an, a better understanding of salvation and how it is that we're saved. All right? The bigger issue is how are we saved? And so he starts out, he says, we are born Jews. We're not Gentile sinners. So he says, you know, me and Peter and, and James and, and his friends, we were born into Judaism. We were born with certain advantages, let's say. We grew up knowing the Old Testament. We grew up worshiping the one true God. All right? In a lot of ways, I look at that, and I'd, and I'd see very similar to myself. But born into the church, you know, raised in it, even went to a Christian school. And so, like, the easy path for me was to be a Christian. So am I saved by the accident of my birth? Am I saved just because... I happen to be born into the right environment that would push me in that direction. So are we saved by birth? And then he goes on, he says, well, but we know that a person isn't made righteous by the works of the law, but rather through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Are we saved by what we do? Right? Are we saved by all the customs we keep? Are we saved by uh, the, the rules that we keep? All right? By good works, by obedience to the law, or in the case of Judaism, by joining the club, by, by going to the circumcision party, right? He says, is that, is that really what it is? You know, what, but he says, but we actually know, even we Jews know that that's not actually how we're saved. Now, you can read the Old Testament 
And you, can, and you can walk away from all those questions and say, well, yeah, it seems like, yeah, Israel, God chose Israel. He gave them the law, said do this, and, and you'll be saved. But if you actually probe a little bit deeper, you find out it's more complicated than that. That it's all about covenant. It's about the relationship between God and his people. And the interesting thing in the Old Testament is that you find that over and over again, that covenant is broken. Israel breaks the covenant all the time. If, if they were saved by their works or by being the lucky chosen people that God made this covenant with, they would not be saved because they've broken it so many times. He says there's something else going on here. And here's what he calls the faithfulness of Christ. He says, We are not saved by works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's what saves us. Now, I'm going to have a little bit of a, like, Bible geek moment here, all right? Because this is actually a really important and somewhat controversial passage in the New Testament. There's two different ways you can translate this phrase, the faithfulness of Christ. So, the Greek construction there, this is, it's what's called a genitive. They have a case system, called, and this is called a genitive. And there are different uses for the genitive. There's one way you can read it to where you would translate it, we're saved by faith in Christ. And that's actually the more traditional translation. We're saved because we put our faith in Jesus. And I think Paul makes that clear elsewhere. I'm not saying that's not part of it. But I don't think that's really what he's getting at here. That's not his point here. Because the other way to translate it, and the way that I think is better, and the way that that my translation translates it, is the faithfulness of Christ. See, the difference there is one of those is something we do, and one of those is something that Christ does. Is it our faith, or is it Christ's faithfulness that saves us? And the difference here, I think, is very important. Because if we're saved by the faithfulness of Christ, by the loyalty and the unswerving commitment of Christ to us, it means we don't do anything to save ourselves. Just like Israel, if it was all about them and their faithfulness to the covenant— They wouldn't have been saved. But God was faithful to the covenant even when they weren't. See, our salvation is something that God accomplishes, not something that we accomplish. Jesus saves us through his own faithfulness. Faithfulness to what? Well, faithfulness to God's plan. Faithfulness to even the point of death, and what God had called him to do, which ultimately was faithfulness to God's plan of salvation. Something that wasn't easy for Jesus to do. You know, in the garden when he prays, if there's another way, let's do it, but not my will, but yours be done. He could have backed out. He could have called down the angels on the cross, but he didn't. He stuck in there. He was faithful to the plan even when it wasn't easy. 
And that's something that Paul says, we know. He says, we know a person is not made righteous by works of the law, but rather through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. His faithfulness to the divine covenant. This central virtue that we see in God all throughout the Old Testament, that even when Israel is not faithful, God remains faithful. Now, what does that do to our ability to boast? What does that do to our ability to to say, we're up here and you're down there, right? We are better. We are superior. You need to become like us. Well, what, what it does is it destroys any ability for us to take credit for our own salvation. It destroys any ability for us to set ourselves above other people. It destroyed for the early church the distinction between Jew and Gentile because if you're a Jewish Christian, guess what? You're not saved because of that. You're not saved because you were born Jewish. You're not saved because you obey the law. You're saved because Christ chose to save you. And it's the same with the Gentiles themselves. And so Paul builds so much of his theology on this. Right? That we don't earn it. And because we don't earn it, we're all on the same level. It makes all those boundary markers, again, you know, the circumcision party, right? You don't have to go to the circumcision party, right? It doesn't matter what table you sit at. All the boundary markers, you know, which I think, boundary markers, I think of the lunch boxes on the table, separating me from you. He says, well, Christ has broken all those down. All those boundary markers are superfluous. They mean nothing because they have nothing to do with your salvation. Now, Paul qualifies that and says that does not mean the law is abolished. It doesn't mean it's nullified. He says, you know, I don't rebuild the very thing that was torn down. I died to the law so that I could live to God. He's not talking about there no longer being such a thing as sin, no longer being commandments. Rather, God's purpose is for us to be made righteous. It's not something we accomplish on our own. But the key to being righteous, being saved both from sin's penalty and from sin's power, is not our own efforts or performing the correct rituals that will make us one of the cool kids at lunch. Right? It's not about sitting on the right side of the table. It's rather, it's the faithfulness of Christ to God's eternal plan. And that plan to reconcile all peoples to himself. And it's not because of what we have done, but it's because of what he has done. Amen? Let us pray. Lord, so often we want to take at least partial credit for our salvation. We want to act as though somehow we got it right. <clears throat> we know the right words to say. We know the right way to live. 
We know the secret handshakes. And that you remind us that it is not anything that we accomplish, but it is purely because of the faithfulness of your son to the mission, the plan of salvation that called for him to die on the cross for us. That is the only reason that we can be accepted. So because of that, because of our complete dependence upon your radical grace, we have no room to boast over anyone. And instead, we are called to invite all to the table. They can eat freely, just as we do. Lord, help us to invite them. Through Christ we pray. Amen.